conversations and meditations. With Justin Martin. How are you doing anyway, Andrew? I'm really well. It's great to be with you today, Justin. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah, I've been meaning to do this for some time, but it's been a little bit of a case of uh, the lowest hanging fruit. You know, I've had people literally on site that's like, hey, since you're here, do you mind? Um, Whereas, you know, this has taken a little bit more organizing. Obviously, for anyone who's listening that isn't aware, Andrew lives in Melbourne or, or Victoria at least. Um, and Andrew previously has been a resident here at Riverdale for many, many years, for near on a decade. No, yep, nine years. Nine years, and a long, long-term supporter of the emissaries and Riverdale with, you know, roles as spiritual director for, for the region, um, minister, among other things. Andrew, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and, and letting our listeners know how we've come to know each other as well as your involvement at Riverdale my pleasure. Wonderful. Well, um, it's a good thing because otherwise uh, this would be a very short pod- podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, well, currently I'm um, a board member, uh, the treasurer for the emissaries, uh, and I uh, present at the Sunday service. So those who attend that might have seen me on the Zoom, but I've been associated with the emissary since the late 1980s. And as uh, in my profession as a GP, I've actually learned more about the how of being a GP uh, from my time with the emissaries than I have through my medical training. So it's been a a life journey for me that I'm deeply thankful for. And um, great to, I love participating now. Yeah, I will be very glad to have you here. I know that... We've, I've spoken to you many times about it, how it's, it's such a nice thing to have a brains trust and it's, uh, it's a real privilege for me to have yourself incorporated in that brains trust when, you know, we're dealing with finances or even dealing with just some of the unexpected day-to-day human relationships and other aspects of, of a, a space like Riverdale. It, it's great to have somebody that I can call and get some advice and say, ah, don't worry, this isn't the first time this has happened. <laughs> and we got through it then as well, so... <laughs> With that, with that, Andrew, obviously we've we've touched on uh, your current involvement, member of the board and um, participant and presenter with Sunday Surfers. Uh, I know you recently did a, I think it was active lit. No, the it was a, a workshop that you put on living spirit. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, would you mind just talking me through how that went using the online medium? It's something that. Riverdale has been a little bit hesitant to really go fully into. I guess it's you know it's on the edge of our expertise, perhaps. Uh, how was that experience for you? It it was good, um, and surprisingly so. I, it, the group was a mix of folk I'd met before, where I had an established relationship, and others who I'd never met and haven't seen since. Sure. So it. Like the challenge with any group is that how do you develop a sense of group cohesion and once the a, a, a safe place where people can actually share what's coming up for them. Mm-hmm. So when uh, th- that was the challenge, how do I do that 
in an online environment where it's much easier face to face. Yeah. When you're in in the one physical space and you can get more cues from uh, how people are during, uh, and it's easier to do warm up exercises and so on. Of course. But it was um, uh, interesting to uh, face that challenge. And I really, and, and surprisingly, there, there was very little difference. Sure. And, and I, I'm a great believer that uh, spirituality has to be practical, has to make a practical difference in my life and in the lives of others. Otherwise, it's just a con job. Mm-hmm. And I was, my parents were, were sort of had communist leanings, really. Uh, academics in the who'd been through the Second World War, and there they had been impressed by the uh, Karl Marx's comment that religion is the opiate of the masses. Sure. So you know he was speaking in the 19th century about people just trudging off to church every week and being told that your life might be miserable now, but you know there's a better future awaits you mm. after you're dead yeah just well, keep clocking on <laughs> yeah just yeah don't 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 rock the system just keep cracking on and you'll be right once you're dead mm-hmm. well that didn't seem like much of a deal to him and it, it seems like a load of nonsense to me yeah. but i uh, one of the things i've really appreciated about my association with the emissaries is that i have been shown through the various teachings there are ways to understand how life works so that it becomes actually less of a mystery and and more of a like a recipe you you follow a recipe and you create something beautiful yes Uh, you can do that i can do that every day once i understand how how the process works so Having started my life as a, well, I'd say a firm atheist, I now come to a place or came to a place of realizing, wow, it's, there actually is a difference between living a black and white TV type life and a color TV type life. And the difference is, do I understand what gives color? And how do I, how do I make more of that? What do I have to do to have more colour in my life? Mm. Wow, it's not as hard as I thought. Sure, yeah. Uh, that's beautiful, I think. Um, I heard a fella talking about, he wasn't necess- he didn't. he was more agnostic, but he had made a conscious decision to live as if there's a God because he found that it just was a better, it was a more fulfilling strategy than any other strategy he'd employed. And, um, mm. you know, it feels like that recipe exactly as you're suggesting, if you follow the recipe, you'll get a delicious cake. Or if you take my, my daughter's leave and don't bother with a recipe, you might end up with just a mess in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. But no, that, that's, that's wonderful. Well, would you mind telling me a little bit more about your, your history, Andrew, uh, particularly for, for listeners who don't know you as well as I do? Go back as far as, you, as you're happy to. Uh, you've already spoken about your parents. What, what was their background? Well, my parents grew up in the, you know, born in the, the 1920s. And so their 
formative years were in the pre-war mm. uh, and then fashioned by the war itself. Well, in, in the pre-Second World War years, uh, Marxism, you know, communism was actually quite a popular uh, response to, to amongst intellectuals yeah. uh, to the woes of the world in at that time you know the been the the first world war which hadn't really resulted in a great outcome germany was um uh in a mess the world was in in a financial depression in the 1930s here was someone um communism was promising uh, a sort of more e equal uh, egalitarian type a possibility so it was very appealing yes so i think my my parents uh, were attracted to that you know the brotherhood of man and mm -hmm. and, and so on so they, they were both um, university trained my dad ended up teaching uh, had a great gift for languages uh, french and german he taught that throughout his life and uh, my mum was a social worker right. and they had planned to go to Germany and help in the rebuilding of Germany after the Second World War, as they both knew, uh, could, were fluent in German. Then my elder brother came along and that put pay to those plans. Yeah. But part of the, the communist uh, sort of manifesto really was about um, religion being a con job. Mm -hmm. So that was the atmosphere in which I was brought up. And it was, it's almost like if you're not intellectual, if you're not, if you can't think for yourself, mm -hmm. then you'll, you'll get religion. Mm -hmm. um, but any thinking person wouldn't buy that rubbish. My, <laughs> and in the 1960s, my sister, two older brothers and a younger sister. My sister got desperately lonely in her teens and found friendship in a church, ah. a, a sort of Baptist church group. Well, she ended up marrying one of the guys in the church. And but along the way, the, uh, the Baptist tradition was to try and save as many souls as they could. So they were trying to convert me and others in the family now that just you know reinforced this mm -hmm. more and more this is just a load of bollocks really yep so that's where it stayed until i uh, met my wife and she had a very different experience of uh, religion growing up in a, in a small farming community church services where the major community gatherings yes so so for her it was not so much about the theology but it was about community so she encouraged me to come along go to a let's go to any church but we settled on a, on a, on a church in the center of melbourne which just happened to be uh, the minister there was an eminent psychologist as well as a minister right so he started to sort of decode biblical texts for me and translate those, 
translate those into modern psychological principles. Okay. And that really sort of impressed me. Yep. Actually, maybe there isn't so much BS in the in the Bible. It's just written in a way that it's hard to understand mm. and hard to see what it means in our day. It was obviously meaningful back then, but we're not back then. So after that was sort of drip feeding me as I um, in, in in some years. And do, you then, mind, do you mind if I ask, Andrew, what years were these? What what age were you when this was going? Oh, okay, going? so I would have been in my twenties. Yes. So then, the 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 sort of aha moment came uh, when I was we had our first child. Our, our son was born, and I, you know, I, I was a GP. I delivered babies. I'd, and I always knew there was something, there was a quality of energy in the delivery room after a baby was born, doesn't appear anywhere else. Mm. So I was conscious, you know, I would now call that sacredness. I didn't particularly at the time. Mm. Um, but there was something special happens when a baby's born. But holding my own, our own child, mm. it was, it sort of hit me like I had contributed so little to this amazing creation that was, I was holding. And both of us really had contributed so little. Uh, it just seemed implausible to me that this was all chance. Mm-hmm. It was like, uh, I, at that moment, I, I thought, maybe this isn't all chance. Maybe, maybe this is, um, there is some pattern here. How come I have been given this amazing gift? Hmm. I haven't earned this. It's just been given to me. And it, like, as I opened that space in my consciousness, it was like this voice said to me, well, now you've woken up. Did you notice all these other events in your life where actually you have been assisted in ways that you haven't acknowledged? And I it was sort of like a life review. I, uh, and the thing that struck me most was the synchronicities that had occurred that I hadn't noticed. So, for example, uh, my wife and I moved into student housing together. And, you know, 47 years later, or 50 years we've been, we've known each other this year. I went to Horsham as a a resident in my first postgraduate year. And uh, I was a bit peed off with what I was um, allowed to do. I thought I was more skilled than they acknowledged. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I realized this is a great place for GPs. And then when I finally finished all my postgrad training, so four, four years later, I went to the College of GPs and said, you know, I want to be a GP in the country. And they said, oh, Horsham's just contacted us. 
they want a GP. So there were just numerous examples like that uh, where I realized may, maybe this isn't just all, all chance. Maybe uh, life, maybe there's some sort of pattern design here. And uh, when I say yes to the design, then it unfolds in a way that just gets more and more, you know, good things happen. Yeah. So that was the, uh, I guess at that time I called that like it was, it was like the best way I could describe it to myself is as well as me, there is some other benevolent force that is playing a part in my life that is invisible and but actually has my good best interests at heart mm -hmm. and provides me with opportunities that I would never have thought of. Mm. Um, so at that time, the best language I could come up for that was God. So um, Lyle and I joined the, the Uniting Church in Horsham, met some lovely people there and so we we had both community but also sort of inspiration that, that's actually living according to spiritual principles was doable wasn't just a fantasy and then shortly after that i was getting a bit um, disheartened as a gp because i it started out with all the general practice, all this wonderful idea. I was going to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Within a couple of years, I thought, my God, what have I done? This is just, um, we're just making people worse. Sure. You know, at, at best, we're patting them on the head and say, just keep going. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or at worst, we're making them, we're making people worse. And so I got really disheartened, but I thankfully met a group called the Whole Health Institute, which was uh, one of the, what could I call it, a craft group, I suppose, hosted by the emissaries. I didn't know that at the time. So here we are in the, in the 1980s, where... Uh, what is regarded now as holistic medicine and al alternative options back then were just, these were just not around. Um, in, at the time that I started being connected with the whole health institute in the mid-1980s, it was still in the uh, Australian Medical Association Charter of Ethics that it was unethical for a GP, to, to, for doctors to talk to chiropractors. Not that, it, you know, you couldn't be struck off because you did it, but, but it was a behavioural standard that, that doctors were, were expected to have no conversation, no contact with chiropractors, as an example. And, the, and you could extend that to naturopaths and yeah. everyone else. So uh, the whole Health Institute, on the other hand, said, look, 
we are all part of the one uh, endeavor. Yes. The one endeavor is let's help people find their way to a place of healing. And it was like the, the image was, uh, let's imagine a wheel, a bike wheel with all these spokes and there's a hub at the center. There are many, many spokes one could take, but the experience of healing is what is at the center. And uh, healing is not curing. It wasn't about if you go down my spoke, you'll get better and all your ailments will go away. Healing was about coming to a place of peace of mind. So even when people are dying, they can still be profoundly healed. They can be at peace with what, the, the, how their life is unfolding. Yes. And, and I had experiences like I have been blessed to have had experiences like that so that opened the whole health institute opened my eyes to possibilities in healthcare, and eventually led to me leaving the medical clinic I was in and setting up my own whole health clinic in Horsham mm. where I worked with my wife and others for 16 years before coming to Riverdale. Yeah, yep. Um, but so then I, I learned about the emissaries as the sort of auspice the, or, or the, the philosophical group who promoted the whole health institute and a range of other, you know, might say special interest groups would be better rather than craft groups. And I found that I was really attracted to the emissaries because they taught this practical spirituality. This is not about beliefs. It's about here is things you might like to know about how life works. Now you go and try it yourself. Don't take our word for it. Prove it out to yourself. Because that's the only thing that matters. If in the end, it doesn't matter what anyone else says I ought to believe. It matters what I know to be true yeah it's it's um many times of magnitude more potent a teaching if it's if it's a lived experience than uh an experience of someone else's lived experience conveyed to you <laughs> it's like yeah i can um yeah. uh, intellectually grasp the concepts that you're sharing with me but until i've experienced it for myself it, that's all it is uh, it's it, it's abstract which is still still worthwhile but um but certainly not as potent as going ah yeah i understand i know yeah and i i um appreciate that i went through those phases of learning the theory and then finding that actually this this theory does show show itself in my life you know it's a practical it has practical application. When I learned to recognize ahead of time or at the time rather than in hindsight, yes. which is where my learning started, once I learned to recognize that actually here is this principle unfolding right now. Okay, what do I need to do to align with that? A bit like surfing a wave. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do I put myself in the, position hmm. to move with the energy that is already moving yeah 
That's a Thank great analogy you. because as a, as a very average surfer myself, I, I recognize that 90% of the game is getting to the right spot to start with. You know, it's, um, you watch beginners like myself flailing for hours in the water and, and then you see an experienced surfer just seemingly effortlessly glide to, you know, with predictability, the exact spot that's going to give them the best ride every time. And uh, yeah. yeah, for someone less experienced like myself, it's it's always a, a wonder to watch. It's like, and, and, and there's always an um a desire in my mind is like, if I could just keep up with them, <laughs> if I could just follow the path that they're, they're showing me where to go, uh, it's just having the, the conviction to get out there and actually do it yourself is, um, yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah. So I, one of the things that um, just in this same territory that struck me about the emissaries was it, there's uh, one of the uh, leaders back along the way he gave this talk about the EDL or the, the emissaries of divine light are a door. The purpose of a door is to walk through it. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not something that you stop at the door and say, Oh, what a beautiful door. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, stand there endlessly admiring the carving. Mm -hmm. The perp the purpose is to walk through it. And when you walk through it to have, have one's own experience, so I've really appreciated that about the emissaries. So I, I found in the, my um, connection with the emissaries who were the, located at Riverdale, that's where the Australian headquarters was um, and still is. Yes. It was a, a, like a gathering place. It, it was a learning space. And there was a community there. Mm. And through my, through what I learned in the classes that I attended and from other people uh, who were living there, I, I learned to trust, you know, to open the door a little bit, you know, put my toe through the door and then, you know, in, increasingly have the courage and, and feel uh, confident enough to actually step through the door and discover uh, my own experience. And then that became my knowing. Mm -hmm. And then that made it easier to keep walking through the door. Yeah. So if, if I give an ex one example of a, a piece of wisdom I got from one of the folk who were living at Riverdale, I had been, as a doctor, in this uh, large clinic of G with GPs and specialists for nine years. Seven of those years, I was whinging about how that it wasn't right, you know, medicine's lost its way and so on. Finally, I come over to a, uh, an event at Riverdale, and one of the guys there said, listen, life can't help you while you keep whinging. So why don't you go back there and behave as though there's nowhere else on earth you'd rather be and see what happens? Well, I went back uh, and did that. And within five months, I was out of there. And it, it was just astonishing to me. 
uh, and the difference was that I decided this is there's nowhere else I'd rather be. I will give this. I'm, I'm done with com complaint, <laughs> and 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 I actually gave more of myself than I had for years, and that in the giving more of myself, what I got back was nah, We don't want you. We don't want your ideas. And 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 it just a light bulb went on. Right now life is telling me now you can leave and and i did and that led to setting up my own clinic and that was a whole marvelous adventure mm, that's a great story yeah I, I read a book recently i can't recall the name of the author but it was called the space within the space within and uh, it it was the, one of the first times i'd heard this concept or, or perhaps it was the first time that it landed and actually was like, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, was this idea around our feelings and how typically our feelings aren't actually a direct response to the environment around us, but they're a direct response to the thought that we had about the environment around us. And, mm -hmm. um, and that there is a, a step between an experience and a feeling, and that typically is the thought. And that with skill and practice, we can change the lens that we're viewing the world which will ultimately affect the thought we have which means we might end up with a nice feeling at the end of it even though the <laughs> external stimulus might be the exact same thing um, but just by changing the way you're viewing it it automatically changes the outcome um, mm -hmm. and yeah it sort of feels like a little bit like what you're saying there's like don't go into it with this expectation go into it <laughs> seeing it in a new light and see what see what happens as a response to that um, absolutely yeah it's beautiful yeah. I, I know that um you're very missed here particularly for your your medical prowess combined <laughs> with your uh your understanding that it you know it is a holistic approach to, to wellness um you know i was speaking to I, I won't mention names in case anybody hears this that that i that i know but i was speaking to somebody who recently lost a uh, a family member and we were we were discussing a sort of level of regret that upon the passing of of her loved one, they had never even during those last days of of their relationship on this earth together, they didn't discuss what was actually going down. You know, the elephant in the room. Oh, you're dying, and, and so your comment earlier that you know even upon the threshold of transition, people can be healed. There's no end to when that healing can occur. It makes me think about the healing that can occur for individuals even after the passing of another of a loved one. Um, mm. And I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about that at all. Uh, topic without uh, notice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I wonder. I agree wholeheartedly that there is no no end to when a healing could occur and. I'm wondering if you have any ideas about how I could help this person see that just because that conversation wasn't had in that moment, that there could be opportunity for that conversation to still occur perhaps mm. or some other strategy. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. What a great question. <laughs> well, um, I'm mindful that in the Buddhist tradition, 
they say that um, after death, the, the soul lingers in this sort of no man's land, I think for 49 days before it, it passes to whatever destination it's, it's due to go to. Yes. So there is this window in Buddhist thought about, uh, about influencing the, the passage of the soul into its next life cycle after physical death. Right. So that they have a whole set of um, practices based around that. But it did, it did strike me. So that's one, one thought. The second is there are some experiments from physics that show that what we do in the present can influence what's had in what's occurred in the past. Yeah. So that is, it's quite complex physical experiments. I won't attempt to explain them. But it, it does make sense to me because I see uh, in, in traditions such as the uh, Mormons, the, the Latter-day Saints, they have a practice of church members retrospectively baptizing their ancestors. That's wow. why they're so interested in family history, because their belief is that on the judgment day, all those who are baptized, including their ancestors who had no idea about being Mormons, sure. will ascend to the promised land. So putting all this together, it um, makes, I think there is some something about what we do now um, having an influence on what's what's happened before so i would encourage your uh, the woman you spoke about to speak that which is she would have liked to have said yeah and to let herself fully feel mm -hmm. the the energetic of that that is a gift to her loved one. Mm. I can think of a really crude example of how uh, this moment can affect the past. And it, it's a fairly simple demonstration, I suppose, which is to say, you know, if, for example, if I say the sentence to you, um, Andrew, I'm going to give you $1,000 in 100 years' time. <laughs> like all of a sudden, I've changed the meaning of the past by an action in the present. And um, I think it, it is a, an example of how that could, could well be, you know, by finishing a sentence, you might change the entire meaning of the, the previous sentence, you know, it's, um, yeah, as a, as a very simple. Yeah. Well, um, I like, I like your um, analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I, as we're talking about this, you know, I, I'm feeling how precious this is this is sacred territory where we are in mm. um, in this in you raising this because uh, there there is you know people can be bulls in a china shop mm. um, but it is possible 
to be, I was going to say artful, but artistic and, and um, to grasp the magnitude of, of the opportunity uh, and, and let something that has been longing to be said, to, to let, that, let that out. And um, when, when that happens, my experience is just like a gush of, ah, that feels better. Yeah. And somewhere in the universe, that all makes sense and, and it plays its part. Mm. It's, and it's an important part. That was uh, in the same conversation that I was having, we touched on the idea of, uh, of how in my, in my experience, because in, in this last 12 months, for whatever reason, maybe it's actually a sign of how blessed I've been. But in this last 12 months, I've, I've been to more funerals than I, than I have in the 46 years prior uh, combined. So I guess that is just a sign of how fortunate I've been for 46 rather than this having been a particularly catastrophic year. However, I, I, something I've noticed for myself to be true is that it's been quite exhausting at times, you know, and particularly at, at, at um, peak moments such as funerals. And I noticed over this, this course of the 12 months that initially, for whatever reason, maybe it's the stiff upper lip British way or the, um, you know, it's our cultural norms, I suppose, to, to where possible attempt to suppress our emotions, you know, for the sake of others um, as, as much as anything else. And I was noticing how exhausting that is <laughs> and, and how... how naturally if you allow emotions to flow how naturally they can flow with very little tax on the way you know they flow they're spent you recover um, but it seems to be something about resisting those emotions that is just so you know it's where you get the sore throat if you're trying to suppress tears and uh, it's just so draining I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that but that's been my observations. It's like, you know, just speaking to my friend as if you have to cry, just cry with all of your heart because you won't cry forever. And, um, you know, uh, the, the thought that came to me was maybe because I, I was trying to put it in the, the context of evolutionary advantage. You know, it's like, why do we get so sad when somebody dies when for millennia people have been dying? And, and what would be the advantage for us to be so emotionally um, invested in that everyday occurrence. And it came to my mind that, you know, often, oftentimes it feels that the things that I recall the most in my life are the things that didn't go well. It, it, they're the traumas in inverted commas. It's maybe an overused term these days, perhaps, but it's the traumas that tend to stick truest I don't remember all of the fantastic days I've had, but I, I sure as heck remember all of the worst ones. And I'm wondering if it's, it's a biological way of ensuring that, that we remember, that we remember our past, we remember our ancestors, we remember our loved ones, and that we, we, we have a weight of significance on their lives. Um, because if, if my parents pass away and it's just another day, <laughs> you know, if it has no emotional toll, then, you know, how, how vividly will I remember their, their presence? I'm not sure that, so that was the, the, what I try, I was trying to comfort her and saying, you're supposed to be this sad. It's in fact, it's good that you're this sad because 
this is going to ensure memories for the rest of your life. Um, I'm not sure if that was <laughs> accurate, but it's what came to me at the time. I, I've I've heard it said that uh, where there's um, deep sadness, there's deep love. Sure. So it's it's like a a corresponding. That there will be sadness to the to the degree that there's been love. Hmm. So um, I think. My sense is that purpose of tears is to help us let go and uh, to let let go of of the past, let go of what has has passed, in order that we be fully as fully present as we can mm -hmm. to what's coming. So, one of the things I've noticed being a parent is that. It's a series of grief. Mm -hmm. One of the themes is let just keep letting go, keep being letting whatever sadness needs to be expressed to, to be expressed in order that we can be fully I can be fully present now mm. with what my child needs now. I, when our son went to boarding school, um, we all knew. This is the right thing for him. Mm -hmm. Although none of us had imagined, you know, pre-planned that. As it turned out, that's how it was. But I felt the most profound grief mm -hmm. um, about that. And, and I recognise what that's about is that he doesn't need me to be the father I was and that I've enjoyed. He needs to, me to be a father of a teenager mm. and I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. So I have to let go of the father I've been in order to, to, to discover who I need to become. Yeah. And there were, so there was no death other than an inner death in me, the death of, a, of, of an image I'd had of myself mm -hmm. and, uh, I I realise that is the process of transformation, mm -hmm. and and, I, and I've I've been blessed that the emissaries have made that, you know, have described that so clearly. Mm -hmm. you, you were I will, and I have subsequently experienced a number of cycles mm -hmm. of this. You, know, you might say death and resurrection. Yeah. Uh, within my own uh, seventy plus years on the planet, so now I re now I know. Okay, that's just that's how it is. It's not. There's nothing wrong. It's just uh, I need to let go of something in yeah. order to become something. It's it's interesting you mentioned that cycle because the very first time I met you um, here at Riverdale, I was responding to a, a job ad that had been put on seek or some such place. And, uh, I was obviously intrigued because I, I phoned and spoke to Lyle, your beautiful wife and said, you know, I think I'm interested in this job, but before I invest any more time of my own, I'd love to come out and see the place and meet you and get a better understanding of, of what it is you're about. And I remember coming along to that meeting, uh, at the time I worked for, for Dulux, the paint company. And I, 
I was sitting just up at the top of Clifford Road, which is, for those who don't know, about a kilometre approximately from, from the gate of Riverdale. And I was 15 minutes early and I was sitting there and I was, as was my practice at the time, saying affirmations into my rear vision mirror about how I deserve to have, well, maybe not even deserve, but, you know, how love was uh, available to me and how a life of fulfilment was available to me, etc. And I remember looking at my clock and, and realizing, okay, I better, better go down and, and meet everybody, really stepping into the unknown. And I got about halfway down Clifford Road when I just broke into tears. I just started crying on the way down. And so I had to pull over and compose myself, recompose myself. And as I drove up the driveway, I sort of you know, shook it off and just dismissed it as like, well, that was odd. And for it actually took a number of months for me to reflect on that experience and, and try and make sense of it. When I eventually came to a similar conclusion to yourself, which was in hindsight, I think what was occurring, it was like a, um, my, my ego of that moment acknowledging that by stepping over this threshold, I was about to let go of the person I'd identified myself as being, you know, and, and who I'd been quite successful in identifying myself as being. And I'd gained friends and some, some uh, you know, financial security and family that loved me. And yet here I was being prepared to step into the unknown and the recognition that a, a little bit of who I thought I was might not be coming along for that journey. And um, yeah, so I, I think I can relate very much to that cycle of letting go of an aspect that has got you here, but might not get you to there. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Thank you for sharing. My pleasure. I think these are universal experiences and uh, what I've appreciated about uh, Riverdale and the emissaries over the years has been describing these things. And then, then I've been able to see, oh yeah, that's what that, looks like in mm. in a human life and um it it does all form part of a purposeful pattern so when i when i came to live at riverdale so we were in this clinic lovely clinic doing great work for 16 years but there came a time in the, towards the end of those 16 years that we all knew all of us knew this something has to change. Mm. None of us could predict what that was, but um, uh, I, I had an operation and woke up from the operation and, and realized I don't need to keep doing this anymore. Yeah. So, uh, and, and as it turned out, one of these synchronous things, the, a new clinic was opening in Horsham. And I thought, wow, uh, we, we could transfer all our patients to that clinic mm -hmm. the, the people would be cared for and i would be able to leave yep. because i knew i couldn't just i had to leave Horsham if i was going to take the step that was right for me yes and and i um i realized as part of this step like the the words that came to me was i need to get depressed yeah there was there was some I, I realize there's some transformation that's trying to happen that can't happen while I'm in Horsham where I've got all this expectation of 
being a wonderful doctor and so mm-hmm. on. So I need to leave that place. And the only way I could conceive of the this transformation was depression. Mm. Well, it didn't take that long, <laughs> actually, before I was full on into this cycle of transformation a few months later. And I've never felt that anxious in my life. Wow. And it, um, I was about to put myself on antidepressants and yep. all, all sorts of things. And one of my emissary mentors just said, no, nope, this is just the transformation process. Mm-hmm. You know, just hold, hang in there. And I was thankful at the time in at Riverdale, there was a wonderful elder who uh, shared one beautiful attunements. Mm-hmm. So I like, for those who don't know that, that's um, energy work, uh, probably most akin to Reiki. Mm-hmm. So I would have three or more attunements a week. Mm-hmm. And so I'd get these brief, uh, you know, hour or two of respite amongst this chaotic anxiety mm. Uh, but it, and it went on for some months, but thankfully the people who cared for me w- with understanding just said, "Hang in there, it's okay," mm-hmm. and and it was. And uh, I have through that experience and the and the learning subsequently that I've had, I've become an even better doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I'm dealing with people with in the most, ch- you know, some of the most challenging circumstances with um, chronic pain, and I hear all these very sad stories. Mm-hmm. But there are also amongst them people willing to let transformation happen in their lives, and and it's stunning mm-hmm. to to see. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that work that you're doing now, Andrew? Because I know it is, uh, it's a real passion of yours and it's something that I think it is probably in the last decade it's become better well-known how, just how many people are walking around suffering from A, chronic pain, but also B, from addictions to, to painkillers as a result of that pain. And my understanding is oftentimes those painkillers are the very thing giving them the pain that they're trying to get away from. Yeah, once that cycle sure. once that cycle starts, would you mind explaining to the to the listeners a little bit about the work you're currently doing? Sure, I work in back in Horsham where I was a GP, and I go there one week a month, and in between times by telehealth consults. But the, what I find is, yes, we've we've made a the medical profession has made a mess of people you know, with chronic pain because we we were encouraged to think that chronic pain was a bit like a long-lasting acute pain. Mm-hmm. And for acute pain, painkillers work really well. For chronic pain, they don't. And But we, we were told, well, you just need more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we got into, as you mentioned, the, the problems of uh, high-dose medication use yes what i what i found is that people with pain have a story 
They want to tell their story. No one chooses to end up in pain, but 20% of the population have say they're living with chronic pain. So I find that the first step is to hear the story and it's not just the story of physical pain. It's the very often the story of emotional pain or, mm-hmm. or even soul pain, a, a longing, that, a love that can't, is difficult to express or mm-hmm. so on. So having had my years at the, with the emissaries on, I can hear these different patterns and, and so I can describe to people what this is what I'm hearing. And, and often that alone helps people relax. What's happening to them is, is understandable. It's not chaotic, uh, out of control, some nasty thing happening. It may not feel great, but it's understandable. And, and then I, I find that very often there are even medical things that can help reduce pain. And and then we have um, allied health physiotherapists, uh, occupational therapists and psychologists in our team. So what they offer can be really helpful as well. Yeah. So I I find it all begins with um, understanding, and and I find that understanding that matters most is born of knowing of sharing an experience that we are both human we're both here human beings and we are both seeking to have the best life experience we can mm-hmm. and there is no difference between you and I other than we've walked different paths mm-hmm. and we have different skills so i i will be with you contributing what I can to help you live the best life you can, whatever that takes. I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Yeah. Beautiful. I imagine there'd be a lot of the issues would be psychological for some people, particularly after having experienced pain for many, many years. Mm. I know what it's like. I'm a pretty upbeat guy, but if I've got a headache for more than a couple of days, (laughs) I can get really depressed and and it's, and oftentimes I've noticed when I've been going to visit people in the hospitals that they, they're not quite themselves in terms of, I think it can go either way. Some people go, they, they compensate and overcompensate by being particularly lovely to the, to the staff that are assisting them and the nurses, et cetera. But other people can be pretty snappy and short and understandably they're in a lot of pain. So yeah, I imagine that once that ongoing pain has just ground you down to to almost forgetting who you used to be before it i imagine that that would be quite a journey yep Mm. it is and you're right i think any any uh, persistent pain or probably any persistent symptom that's Mm. unwelcome is uh will be as you said earlier you will have thoughts about it Mm -hmm. and and then based on the thoughts, we'll have emotions about it. Yes. So that's where I think so, so it's so helpful to understand persistent pain mm. and, and understand what's true about it. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I really like uh, this um, quite quaint little biblical phrase, you know, all you need is the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true. It, it's true. Yes. So when people do understand what's, what's happening for them, something comes to rest. It's not so big and nasty anymore. Mm. Doesn't mean it's, it goes away, but it becomes, uh, it becomes smaller and the person becomes larger. Yes. I often said to my patients, look, you've got, when it comes to pain, you've got an invisible Siamese twin. Mm-hmm. And the twin's name is pain. And the question for you is, who's, li- who's living your life? Uh, are you living your life, taking the pain along behind you? Or is pain living your life mm-hmm. and dragging you along behind it? Yeah. Uh, and... I, many people haven't thought in that way about the fact that they have given control of their life over and and have you know resigned themselves to a, a lesser life because they have no way to um, influence the Siamese twin. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, yeah, that's incredible work. I'm, Myself and, and thousands of others, I'm sure, are very glad that you know, people as uh, compassionate and educated as yourself are working on that program and helping people to kick those habits and, and dare I say, befriend their pain if possible. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. We've spoken about the present. We've spoken a little bit about the, the past and, and what, what's got us up to this present moment. Whenever I see you, um, typically your response is um, that you're a happy chappy, and uh, <laughs> which I think is very charming. And what's giving you that sense of optimism? Um, do, if you don't mind, I'm assuming you're optimistic because you you typically uh, ha- have a bright outlook and, and seem to be enjoying this moment. Do you mind if I ask you, in your opinion, you know, what do you see as the bright the bright aspects of the future for humanity and, and then uh, Riverdale as well, of course, included in that. If you can weave that in skillfully, that would be even better. But, but the bigger question is, you know, what, what do you see as, as uh, those, those rays of hope and opportunity for the, for the human race? Thank you. What a great question. <laughs> well, through my life experience, I've, I've learned there is always wonderful opportunities uh, whether I can see them or not. Yes. So every present moment is full of wonderful opportunities. If I'm not seeing them, it's not that they're not there. Mm. It's just that I, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So I'm, I guess, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would love all people to know that they are loved deeply, deeply loved no matter what, just because they are themselves. There's nothing to earn. It's, it's a given. It always has been and will never change. Mm. And that people have all the support and resources they need available to them to experience life in all its fullness. Now, I know, you know, that there are people in being bombed and Horrible things happen. Yes. Um, yet, yet I know that likewise that in the midst of the concentration camps in World War Two, 
there was a Jewish psychiatrist who noticed that even in that context, there were people who lived well, mm. not not with lots of food, but they imbued their lives with meaning and purpose, mm-hmm. even amidst that horror. So, um, and that was about choices they made. Yep. And I'd love everyone to know that it's it's possible to mm-hmm. live a life of fullness and ri- richness, uh, and a, and a life of purpose and being of service to the community. Yes. That may be service to your partner, your family, your dog, your pets, mm-hmm. whoever. I think for Riverdale, uh, hope would be that Riverdale continues to be a gathering place and a, and a, a learning space and a community. And that arising from that community of people dedicated to a higher purpose that new wonders might emerge because there is a group of people mm-hmm. who are actually uh, together for the purpose of discovering what might emerge if we are together because i think there are creations that don't happen unless there is a group of people individuals can paint a picture but a a group of people can do a range of other things that individuals can't. Like so, even this, this conversation might be a good example of that. <laughs> yeah. Can't do this without you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and if we had 10 people in this conversation, it yeah. would be, it would be different. Yes. I, I have seen that. And I think the, I really like the the guy who started the Heartmouth Foundation, mm-hmm. Doc Childre is his name. He um, he said this: as more of humanity practices heart-based living, it will qualify the rite of passage into the next level of consciousness. Using the heart's intuitive intelligence will be common sense, based on practical intelligence. Hmm. I think that's other words for what the emissaries and Riverdale stand for, being a place where we can learn that practical intelligence and get to experience heart-based intuitive intelligence on a day-to-day basis hmm. and find that that's trustworthy. So I... I think this next level of consciousness that he talks about is about group and and ultimately global heart-based, spirit-guided coherence. Hmm. And who knows what that will look like? I certainly don't. But um, I do know that Riverdale and the emissaries exist to play their part in that grand endeavor that's beautiful well i thank you very much andrew for sharing all that with us for, for yourself who may not know and and for hopefully maybe some new audience members that that we're collecting along the way uh who maybe haven't heard this uh, spoken about previously but my intention around this podcast is to initially introduce 
the members of our community and extended community and, and, and other interested parties that, that I'm fascinated by or, or, or see uh, an opportunity for me to, to get an hour of their time and disguise it as, a, as an act of service. <laughs> so very much appreciated. Thank you. But once we've got those sort of introductions over with, so to speak, my plan was to then reconnect with, with individuals and touch on specific subjects, um, maybe specific aspects of a philosophy. Maybe we'll talk about, just as you've described, you know, heart-based living, or we may look at the afterlife or, or whatever other interesting sort of philosophical and spiritual topics that we might um, see fit. If you're willing, I'd, I'd love to invite mm. you back maybe in the next month or so to, to have a more specific conversation around a, a topic of your choice. Sure. Yeah, that'd be mm. much appreciated. I think we're done, Andrew. We're an hour and 10 minutes in, uh, and it's been a, a really wonderful conversation. I've appreciated your time very much. My pleasure, Justin, and have a wonderful rest of your day. One last thing is if you wouldn't mind, before the end of the day, giving your wife, Lila, a birthday hug from me <laughs> and wish her all the very best from her family at Riverdale. I will do that. Thank you. I'll speak to you soon, Andrew. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye for now.